Well, good morning. It's good to see you again this, this morning. I'm happy to be in the pulpit as we continue our uh, series through Ephesians. We're in, in Ephesians chapter 4. We've been here for the past four weeks. Just as a, just a little bit of review here in the first six verses, we spent two weeks on that. Pastor Keith was really setting the stage for the book and the rest of this series uh, talking about unity. We have been called together. We're one body, uh, one church, and we're called together as individuals who make up the body of Christ. And then last week, we looked at verses 7 through 16, and, and what we hopefully realized last week is that we grow together by using our gifts. We have been gifted by God's grace, but it's not just for our individual benefit. It's for the benefit of the whole. And as we each do our part, whether it be through our spiritual gifts or our natural talents, uh, we are important to the growth and health of the church, whether it be here at the chapel or the universal church, as we proclaim Christ across our communities and ultimately the globe. This morning, we're going to be looking at a huge chunk of Scripture. Uh, it's almost 50 verses. Uh, so I'm going to try to get through it. If I start talking really fast, that's why. Uh, there's a lot of good information here. We're in uh, Ephesians 4, 17, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 5 and verse 21. Uh, really, we're going to be looking at three keys to a new you. And in reality, I think it's more about three indicators of a new you. But uh, before we dig in this morning, let's open up with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I do pray for your strength this morning. Pray for your words, your wisdom, and your clarity of thought. As we walk through your scripture this morning, I pray that your word would be spoken, your truth would impact hearts and challenge lives. Be with us as we continue to worship you in spirit and in truth. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you Google a new you, the first dozen or so results would look something like this. Cosmetic surgery, skin and body care, weight loss clinics, spas, cosmetic surgery, chiropractic care, weight loss clinics, cosmetic surgery. It's just a, a full list out there. That's not the new you we're going to be talking about this morning. You can go home, you can Google all kinds of information about that. Today we're going to be looking at these three indicators of actually living out a new you because I hope you realize that as Christians, we are already new. And so I think we're going to find that as we go out, as we go through the scripture, that if you're a Christian here today, you are new. You have been made new in Christ. And what Paul does over these verses here is lay out a couple indicators. We're going to look at three of them this morning so we can be encouraged, be challenged maybe this morning in these three areas of a new you. The first one we'll see in the rest of chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, we're going to find that the new you has a new wardrobe. We'll begin by looking at the old man in verses 17 through 19. Paul is urging his readers here. He's saying, don't walk in the old man. Don't walk like the Gentiles do. Look at the text with me. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 
They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul is painting a picture of what life looks like without Christ. He paints a similar picture in Romans chapter 1 of what happens when we turn away from God. Just one verse here from Romans chapter 1 verse 21. It says this, For although they knew God, They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Romans 1 echoes the same truth that we see here in these verses 17 through 19. Paul is saying it's not good to turn your minds away from God. And I want you to notice it is an issue of the mind first. He talks about how their minds are futile and their understanding is darkened. So when we talk about the old man, we're not just talking about past ways or outward actions. It's everything. It's outward actions and it's inward motivations and inward attitudes. So for the Christian, we understand that we have to come to an agreement with God. We have to understand and recognize who God is. We have to submit to the truth of who God is. And that's where we arrive at what I've called the changing room here in verses 20 through 24. Verse 20 starts out, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Paul is saying he's writing to Christians and he's saying, this is what you once were. Don't walk like that because you learned Christ. He's saying Christians look different. Christians act different than the world. It's important here that he says that is not the way you learned Christ. He doesn't say that's not the way you learned of Christ. Paul's not talking about just an intellectual knowledge here. He's talking about an intimate knowledge. He's saying that as Christians, you learn Christ. You know Christ, not just about him or of him, but you know him. He kind of stops his thought. He's writing to Christians. But in verse 21, I think he realizes some people might be listening to this letter or reading this letter that don't know what this means to learn Christ. So he takes one verse to explain it briefly. And that's verse 21. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. Paul is saying to learn Christ is to hear the gospel, is to learn the gospel, and is to believe that the gospel is truth. And that truth is only found in Jesus Christ. So Paul is is saying, Christians don't walk as the Gentiles walk in darkened understanding, in the corrupt ways. Because you know Christ. Assuming that you actually do know Christ, that you've heard the gospel, that someone has taught it to you and you believe that it is true. And so then he goes on and continues. Now that he says, okay, so now that you understand what it means to be a Christian. So I would say this morning that if you're not a Christian, the rest of the message isn't going to apply much to you. However, the call is know Christ. The call is hear the gospel. 
The call is respond to the gospel. You can know Christ this morning. Call out to Him in repentance, confession, and you will be saved. This is what happens when you enter the changing room. Verse 22 says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And then verse 24 says, And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So what does it mean to put off your old self? And what does it mean to put on the new self? Well, I think the best way to think about this is to think about clothing. When Paul says, put off your old self, it's as if we were walking into a changing room, we're taking off our old garments, we're laying them aside in order to put on new clothes. So then the question is, well, okay, if I'm taking off the old self and I'm putting on the new self, well, what does that exactly mean? What's the old self and and what's the new self? And I think sometimes we occasionally make the mistake of thinking that there's an ongoing battle between the old man and the new man or the old self and the new self. But as Christians, Scripture makes it clear that receiving Christ, trusting in Christ, saving faith results in a complete change in identity. I'll give you two verses. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He's saying the old man is gone. The new is here. The new is born in Christ. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You see, the new replaces the old. You might be a little confused. If the old man is dead, then what are we supposed to put off? And if the old man is dead, then why do I keep on stumbling? And why do I keep struggling with sin? And the answer is because even though we're new, even though our identity is in Christ, we go back and we like to wear those old clothes. We like to go back. We are still in our human flesh. And our human flesh is what pulls us back and says, hey, you know what? I kind of like those old clothes over here. That made me feel good. And I got compliments when I did this over here in the old clothes. And that's our flesh saying we got to go back. It doesn't change who we are on the inside. And so in reality, what we need to do is put on clothes that reflect our identity. Our identity is sealed and new in Christ. We are a completely new creation. We need to get rid of the old clothes. And we need to put on the new. How do we fight then this flesh? Well, the answer, you might have noticed I skipped verse 23. We don't like to do that around here. So we're going to go back and look. The answer is between these two. You put off your old self because that's corrupt. That's deceitful. How do you do it? You're renewed in the spirit of your minds. We fight the flesh. We fight our human flesh by dwelling on the Word of God, by allowing the Spirit of God to work through the Word of God. So it starts to transform us from the inside out. It allows that new identity to come out, to shine, to put on those new clothes. And so then Paul walks us through the rest of the chapter 
And he, and he tells us some of the differences between the old clothes and the new clothes. So we go from the warning to not stay in the old clothes, get in the changing room, take those things off, put on the new clothes, and now you're walking as a new man wearing those new clothes. So what does it look like? Well, here's this big chunk of Scripture, and we'll read through it quickly. But just listen, it's a compare and contrast, and he does this several times throughout the book, but it's worth reading here this morning. Verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Paul is contrasting old man things, old man clothes versus new man clothes. There's a definite difference. And notice it's not just external behaviors, but attitudes and motivations. Yeah, Paul says, don't lie, don't steal, don't curse, don't sin. But he also attacks those attitudes of bitterness, wrath, anger, malice. And then the instruction that he gives to the Christians, the instructions that he said, these are the new clothes that you want to put on. He says, well, speak the truth with your neighbor. Why? For we are members one of another. Sin not. Why? Because that gives the devil an opportunity to work. Work hard. Why? So that you may give to anyone in need. Speak edifying words. Why? Because that's an avenue of grace. Be kind and forgive. Why? Because that's what Christ has done for you. We could spend all morning looking at these words and parsing out the Greek and figuring out what those things mean. But honestly, I don't, I don't think it's that hard to see. I think 90% of the time we know exactly what's right and exactly what's wrong. We just choose to go put on the old clothes. The old clothes are based in sin and selfishness while the new clothes are evidence of the righteousness and holiness of Christ, and it's outward focused. Live your life by those things. Is this for me, worldly pleasures, or is this for Christ and the benefit of others? Pretty good rule of thumb. Sometimes we get make it too complicated, I think. We try to figure out, well, what does it exactly mean by anger and malice and slander? It's good to know. It's a good exercise. Do the word studies. But let's not overcomplicate it. Righteousness, worldliness. Sinfulness, holiness. Old clothes, new clothes. Paul is telling us how we live on earth makes a difference. When the Christian is saved, he's called to put on a new wardrobe, to enter the changing room to lay aside those old clothes because they belong to our former self they're corrupt to put on our new man clothes 
because they've been created in the likeness of God and His holiness and His righteousness. Listen, that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle with sin or struggle with flesh, but it does mean that we will sin less. And our desire will be to continually take off the old clothes and continually wear the new clothes because we are children of God. Instead of clothes, Spurgeon uses a a little more graphic illustration to convey the truth of how our outward actions change after an inward change or transformation. He talks about a pig. He says, you know what? If I was to come up here and on this side of the room, I'm going to put a trough. I'm going to put a bunch of pig slop in there. And then I'm going to get the finest meal from the finest chef in St. Louis. I'm going to put it on a table right here and put it on the stage. And then we let a pig in here. The pig's going to go to the pig trough every time. Why? Because he's a pig. That's what pigs do, right? But now if the pig was supernaturally transformed into a human being, he wouldn't want to eat the pig slop anymore. Where would he go? He would go over here to this fine gourmet meal. Because he can't even look at that without getting a little queasy, getting a little sick. He goes over here. Why? Because he's a human. Because humans like gourmet meals. They don't like pig slop over there. If you're truly converted this morning, if you're heading for heaven, that analogy describes your conversion. When God supernaturally changes your will and desires, He changes you from a sin-loving and righteous-hating pig into a sin-hating and righteous-loving human. Now, every once in a while, this transformed man might take a look over here. It's been a while since he's had some slop. And he comes over here and he looks at the slop and he says, Man, I remember how good that was. I remember how that tasted. He might get over there. I know I'm supposed to eat that, but man, that looks good. And you know what he might do? He might put his head right in that slop. But you know what happens when the slop touches his mouth? He spits it out. He's sick. That's not what humans eat. That's not who I am anymore. He looks around, hoping that no one saw what he just did. This should be us as Christians. We're going to stumble. We're going to follow. We fall. We might end up with our heads in the slop. But when we do, we shouldn't like it because we've been transformed. We don't like the old clothes. We don't like the old food. We've been transformed from the inside out. Christians, we're called to a new wardrobe or to a new appetite. But we've also been given a new path. Paul begins chapter 5, by saying, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. It's a challenge to Christians. But it's actually a pretty logical statement. Saying, if you're children of God, then you should emulate, emulate your Father. You should look like your Father. You should produce things that come from 
your father, if you're born of God, you're going to naturally display his qualities. So Paul gives us in these 17 verses four paths, four paths to walk. First one's found in verse 2. Walk in love. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, he says walk in love because First John 4, 8 says God is love. In verse 1, we're called his beloved children. We understand that we have the capability to love only because he first loved us. We love God because he is our father. He provides for us. He protects us. He even disciplines us when we need it. And for that, we love him. But here in this verse, we're also called to love as Christ loved. We're called to a deep, a self-sacrificial love that was demonstrated by Christ. See this again in John 15, verse 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. I'm afraid we've heard this so many times, we've turned it into a quaint little saying that we know but we don't really think it applies to us. Jesus did it, and He's perfect, and you know He knows we're just human and flawed. But this is how we are supposed to love. It's not just the knowledge of, yeah, that's what Jesus Christ did for me. It's, no, this is what I am supposed to do for you, my brother and sisters in Christ. Love always costs us something. Love is for others, not just for you. Love gives. It doesn't take. Love is hard, but it's worth it. Sacrificial love was shown through this true story Brian Chappell tells happened in his hometown many years ago. And he says two brothers were playing on the sandbanks by the river and one ran after the other on a large mound of sand, but unfortunately, the mound was not solid. And the weight started to cause them to sink. After a while, the mom, kids didn't come home, so the parents got to rounded up the neighbors. They went out searching for the boys. They found one of the boys buried to his shoulders. He was unconscious. Started digging him out got to about his waist, he regained consciousness. And they said, where is your brother? The child replied, I'm standing on his shoulders. With the sacrifice of his own life, the older brother lifted up the younger to safety. The tangible the sacrificial love of the older brother literally served as a foundation for the younger brother's life. Our love should be tangible. Our love should be sacrificial. Our love is a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. You know why Christ went to the cross? It was definitely because He loved us. But it was also, maybe even more, 
because he loved the Father. He gave himself as an offering to the Father. This is what the Father required. It's what the Father demonstrated his love by sending his Son. That's the kind of love we ought to have for our brothers, for our family, but also our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a big deal. It's a serious kind of love. Paul says, walk in love, because God is love. Paul says, walk in holiness. God is holy. He says, we are saints, verse 3 and 4, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Paul says, we're saints. We're set apart. We're redeemed men and women. So not only do we have new clothes, we strive to avoid even the appearance of old ways and old things. And verse 3 says, talks about sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. They're really all the same genre. And that's just this uncontrolled appetite for the flesh, the sin. And you can see how that just leads right into verse 4 where we're talking about filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking. One usually flows right out of the other. Warren Wearsby, in one of his commentaries, he made this challenging statement. There's two indications of a person's character. What makes him laugh and what makes him weep. We would do well to take that quote and apply it to our own lives. To ask ourselves, what makes us laugh? Is it the crude comedy on TV, in the movies? Do we find enjoyment in the increasingly sexualization of our culture? Do we laugh at the expense of others? Or is it God's Word, fellowship with the saints, that bring us joy? What makes us weep? Are we broken over sin? Are we broken over the lost? If we're imitators of God, the Word of God is going to fill our appetite. And the Word of God is going to salt our speech. It says we should walk in holiness because we are kingdom citizens. Verses 5 and 6. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is, of, who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Christians live in the light of their future destinations. Our actions here on earth are good indicators of our relationship with Christ. Christ is our king, but he is also the judge over all. Paul's pretty clear. Those who are living in the lifestyle of sexual immorality, of impurity, of covetousness, of idolatry, they're not entering the kingdom. He says, don't be deceived by empty words. He's saying, don't listen to those people that say, yeah, you can have Jesus over here and do what you want over here. You can have no problem sinning over here and you can have Jesus too. Those are empty words because they're not founded on truth. 
Christ will judge. We are called to walk in holiness. He also tells us to walk in light. Verses 7 and 8. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Paul says don't become partners. Don't support. Don't become entangled with darkness. Because that's who you were. You're now light. This is the same analogy. You were old man. You are now new man. You were darkness. Now you are light. So walk in light. Don't even mess with the darkness. Stay in the light. He also tells us that walking in the light will produce fruit. There's a lot of things, a lot of places in Scripture that talks about Christians being light. Producing fruit. I'll just give you one of the most familiar ones. It's Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our aim is to produce fruit. Our aim is to be a light to the world. Our aim is to please the Lord in verse 10. Paul gives us one more reason that we ought to walk in the light. And that's because walking in the light exposes darkness. Look here in verses 11 through 14. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Our light, our good works, are walking on the path of light. It shows the sinfulness. It reveals and exposes the darkness of the world. Our lives should be a continual display of this light that Christ has put within us. We are light. And so we ought to walk in the light. This is why Jesus was hated. Because as Jesus walked this world as the light, everywhere He went, sin was exposed. Some people responded properly. They fell before Him and said, Forgive me. Savior, Lord, you are the light and you are the truth. But many rejected. They ran. They hid. They were afraid, ashamed, hardened, ignorant of their sin. Verse 14 is another call if you're not saved in this room tonight. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Paul tells us we ought to walk in wisdom. Look at verses 15 through 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Knowing that the world is darkness and that it rejects light, that it rejects truth, we must seek out truth. 
Where do we find truth? We find truth in God's Word. It's here for us. We have it here. Read it. Know it. Learn it. This is the light. This is the truth. The Word enlightens our mind. It illuminates our path. Psalm 119.105, we teach our children, Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We are to walk in this path of wisdom. Our time is best spent seeking out God's wisdom, not the world's wisdom. Too many times we seek out the world's wisdom when God has given us the truth in His Word. Let's begin with the Word. Let's stick with the Word. So the Christian has a new wardrobe. The Christian has a new path. The Christian also has a new intoxication. It's here in these last verses of chapter 5. Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul is comparing the old man's pleasure with the new man's pleasure. It's a compare and contrast again with the ways of the world and the ways of God. Throughout Scripture, drunkenness is condemned. Alcohol is described as a mocker, a brawler, a path to poverty, It bites like a serpent, stings like a viper. It's addicting, it's sin, and it's in direct opposition to the fruit of the Spirit. There's no debate there. Paul's not only just talking about finding pleasure in worldly things here. More importantly, I think there's the idea of what controls you. The Christian is not to be controlled by wine, alcohol, drunkenness, or any other substance or thing. Drunkenness promises an escape, happiness, but in reality it's temporary. It leads to debauchery, it leads to destruction. If a man is filled with anger, anger controls him. If a man is filled with greed, then greed dominates him. If a man is filled with lust, then lust governs his life. If a man is controlled by Alcohol, that's where he goes. He follows the control of the alcohol. While this is all true, I don't think Paul is actually making a moral argument here about drunkenness. All those things I just said are true, scriptural. There's an interesting thing here going on. And I know because of the context and because I read a lot of people that are smarter than me. Paul's not just warning us against the evils of alcohol and drunkenness. He's warning against finding spiritual fulfillment through anything besides the Spirit. He's warning against finding spiritual fulfillment in the ways of the world. You see, the time that this was written, the church in Ephesus, the church in Corinth, part of their pagan ritual, it was all around drunkenness. They would get drunk. They were participating in sexual orgies so they could have a transcendent experience, so they could be closer to the God, so they could have heightened experiences. And so this was the avenue by which the non-Christians would attempt to meet with the gods. Those in Ephesus would be familiar with these kind of drunken, sexual, pagan 
religious activities. Paul's saying that's not where Christians find their fulfillment. Don't get drunk with wine. That's not how you get closer to God. You know how do you get closer to God? You're filled with the Spirit. You don't need something that's fake, that's manufactured, that's temporary. What you need is the indwelling Spirit, the continual filling of the Spirit. We don't have time really to talk about what all that entails. When you are saved, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. But this verb is talking about being continually filled and continually filled with the Spirit. But as we end, I'll show you what it looks like in worship. These are these last three verses. The Spirit-filled Christian, this is what worship looks like. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, this is spirit-filled living. This is spirit-filled worship. We don't need anything of the world. All we need is the Spirit of God. We are new creations. We don't need the old. We get rid of the old clothes. We put on a new wardrobe. We wear those new clothes. We strive to stay on the path. And then we strive to be spirit-filled and spirit-led. And it shows up in our relationships. And so we're back to the beginning. We're called together. We're one body. There's one Lord, one baptism, one faith, one God and Father. We're all in this together. We need to help each other. How does the Spirit work in our lives? Through the Word of God, but also through other believers. To be filled with the Spirit is key for the Christian is key to understanding our new wardrobe, is key to staying on the new path. It's the ingredient of the new intoxication of the Christian. Let's strive for that this morning. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we do pray that you would help us understand these texts as we fly by it. We just get this overview of this plan that you have for our lives. You have made us New creations, we have been saved for a purpose, for good works which you have prepared for us. Lord, we thank you that you have a plan for us. We thank you that your word illuminates our path. It gives us truth. We thank you for your spirit that helps lead us and guides us, convicts us of sin, helps us be a shining light to the world. Lord, I pray that we understand that worship happens together in unity as we seek to follow after You. And it's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen.